This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We spend a lot of time defining words. Uh, it's just, it's something that the Lord has really led me into over the last decade or two to first of all, determine what the word actually says and then what it means. You can't really know what it means until you first of all know what it says, because you can have a faulty misunderstanding of the word, or you can see a word that's translated in English and bring to it a uh, a understanding that may not be what the actual word means in the New Testament. So as you know, since you've been in here with me for a long time, I spend a, a lot of time going over words. I want to know the difference between no passionately and experientially, and I want to know the difference between knowing cognitively. I want to know the difference between an agape kind of love and a friendship kind of love and an eros kind of physical sexual love. Uh, and and I, I, want to, I want to know what those mean. I want to know the difference between wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You cannot read the Proverbs without knowing the difference between those because they're all kind of lumped together as one. And he will give you wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, but they're three different words because they mean three different things. And once we understand what it means, it, it, begins to, it begins to change things. All of a sudden, now I know what God's Word says, and then I have to determine what I'm going to do with that. Am I going to just blow it off and live my life the way I want to, thinking I'm feasting at the table when I'm really just picking up crumbs off the floor? Do I want to conform my life to his word? Do I want to just go my own way? I mean, then it becomes a personal thing for us. We've been talking a lot about worship. I began this on Tuesday, where we tried to define exactly what worship means and what worship is like and what true worship is all about. And the first thing that we need to do is to find that passage. The passage ahead before you, of course, is John chapter 4, where Jesus talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. Those who worship me will worship me in spirit and truth, so such the Father is seeking those who will worship him. I mean, that word is mentioned three or four times in just a few verses, and it's like a pinnacle verse of worship, how we're supposed to respond to him, but we don't know what it means. I mean, what does worship mean? Does it mean... Does, uh, does it mean, well, let me just, let me read this to you. Instead of me writing it up here, I just took a, a picture of a, uh, a very in-depth word study um, by a man named Zondalus, and he defines exactly what the words mean in the Greek, adding a lot of other verses to it and how it's found in secular literature. And so when we see the word worship in Scripture, can you read that? This is what it means. It means to kiss to adore, to worship. It means to show respect, watch this now, to fall or prostrate before, to kiss 
adore, to fall or prostrate before like someone would a, a king or a, a huge landowner in, in like feudal England. Literally, it says, it means to kiss towards someone, to throw a kiss in token respect of homage. Uh, in the ancient Oriental, which is the time in which Christ lived, when we think of the Oriental, we think of China. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the East here, the Middle East. It says the mode of salutation between persons of equal rank was to kiss each other on the lips. And when the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. When two equals came, they kissed each other on the lips. When one person came and another person came was just a small bit inferior than that. Then there was a kiss on the cheek. Look what it says here. It says, when one of much inferior status, he fell on his knees and touched his forehead to the ground or prostrated himself, throwing kisses at the same time towards the superior, like we're to do with God. It is this latter mode of salutation that the Greek writers, the ones we're reading right now, expressed by this Greek word in the New Testament generally to do reverence or homage to someone, usually by kneeling or prostrating oneself before him. In the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself in reverence or homage. If you kept looking at other definitions, one of the ones that I shared on Tuesday, was to, it was to lick the hand of your master like a dog. Like a dog. When the Lord says we're to worship him, this is what the word means. Have you ever seen this happen in church? I mean, when we come to church, pretty much what we do is we sit as like armed camps, independent contractors, and we sit maintaining our pride and our integrity and our reputation and the fact that we want to feel good about ourselves. And when the music is played, we do this. This is how worship is defined in our nation and the church today. These webs, these pictures I'm showing you are from worship websites where Basically, you sign up for a membership site or they come in and kind of counsel you and show you how to have a worship experience. To us, worship means we have lights and we have the band and we have the really cool singer with the hat on trying to get everybody to stand and raise their hand and sing loud as if that somehow is worship. It doesn't mean worship can't take place during this, but this is not the definition of worship. Like I pointed out on Tuesday, Notice the guy right over here in the corner? In the corner, he has a cell phone up. I'm recording the band. I want to go home and show my friends how tight and cool the band is. Oh, that's worship, isn't it? And so we've basically determined that a musical experience, something that moves me emotionally, kind of like, kind of like I can get if I go to some Justin Bieber concert or something of that nature, that is what worship is all about, completely forgetting what the word means. Or this. Again, another worship experience here where everybody gets together and they raise their hand and there's nothing wrong with that. And they're standing on their feet and the music is upbeat and really cool and all that kind of stuff. And if you notice, the guy here is also holding the video over his head to make sure that we film this because we have to put it on our website. Because if you go to a lot of churches today, especially churches that have over a thousand people, as I've shared with you before, their websites are all the same, and you'll have this sliding banner on the front of this really HD picture, usually five or six slides that, that, that rotate automatically about every 15 or 20 seconds, and at least four of those five slides have something to do with the band. 
or the pastor with his hip little hat on, with no Bible, just kind of walking around, giving some engaging talk. And that's what worship is. How was church today? Oh, it was great, man. The band was tight. Well, did the people worship? No, yeah, they really did. How do you know? Well, they all stood and they raised their hands and they sang their songs and sometimes they had their eyes closed and sometimes there were tears in their face. Just like (laughs) the girls were when the Beatles showed up in Shea Stadium in 1965. I know that's beyond some of you guys. Beatles, that was a band, okay, a long time ago. Anyway, and then people would be beside themselves just crying, you know, and so they had an experience, but is that what worship is all about? Especially when we read in Scripture that it's to fall down, that it's to lay prostrate, is to understand your humility before God Almighty. I mean, I, I notice in Scripture that it seems like every time God shows up and a man encounters God, do you know what their response is? Usually to sit in a chair and say, bravo, excellent job of creation, Lord. Thank you very much. You ever notice that in scripture? Bam, and they're on the floor. They don't fall backwards. They always fall forward, face down in adoration and worship. We're to come before the Lord and worship him. And it's really hard to worship someone like that unless we have a reason. Or we really understand who he is. And the problem with the worship in my life and probably the problem with the worship in your life is not other people trying to do what they do. It's the fact that our God is too small. We don't understand who he is and and what he's done for us. If you really wanted to take the definition of worship, it doesn't look like this and it doesn't look like this. As offensive as this may be, it looks more like this. These are Muslims who are in a state of worshiping a false god. And yet they display in their devotion to him far more devotion than we show to Christ. They pray a certain amount of times a day. Do we? Uh, Just when I get around to it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I'm really busy because I got jobs to do and there's, and there's Facebook posts that I have to look at and, and everything else seems to take precedent over Christ. But with a Muslim, no. And they don't even know the truth like we know. I shared this on Tuesday that when I moved out west um, in Washington State, it's very heavy Mormon country. And so the Mormon missionaries would come by knocking on your door and um, if they found somebody that would allow them in, that they would come back weekly for seven weeks and go through a discipleship kind of flip chart program by then. Back then, I'm sure it's all on computer now, trying to show somebody what Christ is all about. First of all, we never go out knocking on doors to tell people about Christ because that's just uncool and it makes us feel uncomfortable. And if somebody does say, hey, I'm kind of interested at that, we may give them a half-hearted gospel presentation, but do we make a commitment to go back every single week for two hours in the evening just to try to win that one person to Christ? And they don't even know the truth. When our kids are 18 years old, we want to figure out where they're going to go to college. What do you want to do with your life? We're sending you to trade school or an internship or to college because if this is the, this is the best time of your life, the next four years is going to determine how you're going to live the rest of your life. You know what a Mormon family does? They ship their kids off for two years to some sort of 
missionary trip, whether it's abroad or, or overseas. We would never consider doing that. Never. We don't even want our kids going overseas on mission trips because it's too dangerous. What happened here? And we know the truth. We've, we've forgotten what worship is all about and, and what it really means in our life. How do we worship the Lord like the Word says? And we're not talking about just outward semantics. In other words, you know, if all of a sudden everybody said, okay, my posture in prayer now is to lay on my face. Well, that's a great thing, but it doesn't make it in, that doesn't make it worship. Worship has to do with the condition of the heart, and it's a condition of the heart that leads itself to an outward manifestation. It doesn't work the other way around. How do we worship the Lord like that? And, and if I did worship Him that way, what would I worship Him for? Here's the saddest part of, um, of really, I think, church life today. Is when I say this at the end of the service, hey, anybody want to praise the Lord for something today? You should... I know you, you can't see it, but you should see the response of the people when I say that. Anybody want to praise the Lord for something today? Most people do this. If they're looking at me, they'll do this. And then we'll make eye contact. And you know, I understand that and feel kind of uncomfortable. What, what, what do you feel uncomfortable with? Is it the fact that you have to praise the Lord about something? Or is it the fact that it's praising the Lord? Or maybe it's the fact you have nothing in your life to praise him about. And so the few people who are brave, and you can always tell who they are because they're the guys that feel kind of comfortable doing it anyway, will always stand up. And some people will praise God for like an individual thing that happened in their life. But most of us just brush with a broad stroke and say, oh, I want to praise the Lord for my salvation. Nothing wrong with that. But what does that mean to you? What does that mean to a lost person? I want to praise the Lord for my salvation. Well, what does that mean? Well, I was, I was caught in the depths of sin and the miry clay sinking in the abyss and God picked me up, set me on a, the mighty rock. I, I, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that play out in your life? What do we worship him for? And it's not till, as we talked about last week, which I hope you've done this week, that you sit back and remember, remember who he is and who you were and who you are now, and who he is, and who you will be, and who he is. When we remember that all of a sudden something wells up inside of us that wants us to praise him. I have known parents who have signed their kids up for Little League. Or that's when I was growing up. I think it's just soccer now, right? How do you play a sport that you can't use your hands? Never, I'm old school, but you know, you sign them up for Little League. And so their kid, like, hit a home run, Little League. And they are the most obnoxious people on the planet. Because every time you talk to, oh, let me tell you what, you should have been at the game. It was incredible, man. It was like a three and two count. Bases were loaded. We're down by two runs. My kid got up there, and I've been training him, and I've been helping him. Wham! Went over the the left uh, field fence. It was amazing. We won the game. They put him on his shoulder. Look at the pictures I have. Man, I'm proud of this kid. Conversations over here, conversations over here. The guy father comes over here and he's just bending somebody's ear about something he's proud of and excited about, and you need to hear it too. You know people like that? Where are the ones about Christ like that? And if we find somebody in our midst that's like that, we go, wow, that's a fanatic. That person makes me feel uncomfortable. I, there's just too much going on. I mean, how do we worship him? 
How do we worship him in spirit and truth? What does that even look like today? I mean, give me an example. Well, I hope you're in Romans chapter 12, because we're just going to look at two verses today. And in these two verses is the greatest picture of worship and of even salvation that I've ever seen anywhere in Scripture. And there's a promise attached to it. Now, we can quote these verses, and we've read these verses over and over again, but I don't know how long it's been since you just sat down and you ruminated and you looked at the promises that God has for a life that is devoted to Him in worship or a lost person who chooses to devote their life to Christ. Look what it says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... And again, we could quote this probably by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is God's perfect, acceptable will for me? Well, I need to know what these words mean. And then we need to determine not only what it says, but also what it means. And so let's just look at the first part of this. Just three words or four words. I, Paul, beseech. I am begging you. I'm exhorting you. It is my profound desire for you. I'm calling for you. I'm encouraging you. The, the word here is the same word we get paraclete from, which which is the comforter or the one who comes alongside that Jesus referred to as the Holy Spirit. It's one that comes, I beseech you, I'm coming alongside you. You come alongside me. I'm exhorting you to do something. To what? I beseech you. Now it's personal. Not them, not us, but I beseech you, therefore. Well, as I've shared this with you before, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. There's a reason why. Because there's a conclusion or an admonition or a command here being given based on something that's already taken place. There's a truth that has already been revealed, and based on that truth that has already been revealed, the Holy Spirit now is drawing for us a conclusion. And if you want to know what this truth is, you simply look back at the verses that preceded this. Look at Romans chapter 11, just the last couple of verses here, verses 33 to 36. Now, this is the God that we serve. Oh, Paul says, the depths of the riches, both of the, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, exclamation point. He's giving a declaration here, just, oh, God, the, the depths of your wisdom and your knowledge. Exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Exclamation point. I'm proclaiming something profound about this God in which we serve. And then he quotes, of course, Isaiah and Job here. And he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? And then he draws it to a conclusion. For of him. And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. I beseech you, therefore, 
based on what we've just read, to him and for him and through him and the glory that belongs to him, this one we're to worship. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's not dealing with lost people here. He's dealing with people who know the truth. He's dealing with people who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. These people that, that have the Holy Spirit living within them. It's who the, of the deposit, their guarantee of their inheritance to come. He's talking about you and I. Whether we're passionate for the Lord or we're lacklustered for the Lord, the reality is he lumps us all together and says, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, based on who God is and what he's done for you, brethren. But I'm making that plea to you on the mercies of God. I'm asking you to do something based on God's mercy. His pity and his compassion, it means, on ones that are suffering. They're suffering from an alienation of of a relationship with God. They're suffering from the consequences of their own sins. They're suffering from being buffeted by Satan. They're suffering for the, the wreck they've made of their life. And yet God offers them mercy. You know, mercy is not getting what you deserve. I've committed a crime. I'm guilty. I deserve punishment. But mercy comes in and says, no, no, no. I'm not going to let you suffer punishment for your crime and your sin. Instead, in the case of Christ, I'm going to lay it on my son. Grace means that we're given something we don't deserve. Mercy, what, what we've earned is taken away from us. Grace, what we have never earned is lavished upon us. And Paul says, and I'm begging you, brethren, I'm begging you based on who God is and what he's done for you. I'm begging you by the mercy of God. So it's really hard to accept his mercy because I'm still tied up in the same sins I was before. Or it's really hard to receive his forgiveness because I have a hard time forgiving myself. God requires perfection and I'm not perfect, so why even try anymore? I used to be pure, and I felt really good about that, but I'm not pure anymore because I made some unwise decisions, some sinful decisions, so, so therefore God is done with me. I can't go in the front door anymore. I can always go through the back door. He doesn't view me as a loving child of his. Instead, he views me as, as just a daughter or son that's done, done nothing but disappoint him. Where does that come from? He's taken away the penalty of that by his mercy. And he commands us to come to him based on the mercy of God. God, what you've done for me, that you've taken away my sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west, that you've chosen to remember my infractions no more, that you wanted to make something wonderful of my life, but I said no and went out there and destroyed my life, yet you still want to take what little I have left if I give it back to you and turn it into something marvelous because of his mercy. It's never over with God. Isn't that amazing? Never. God never says, you had your shot, you blew it, get out of here. I mean, what man does that to his own children? You know, a child can reject a father. I, just, I don't want to even be your son anymore. I just, you know, I'm, I'm out of here like the prodigal son. I, 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 just, I, I just I can't stand being around you. Okay, and as bad as that hurts, the fact is, whenever the son comes back, a good father always embraces him, does he not? Always. And God is an incredible father. Whole story of the prodigal son points that out. What am I supposed to worship the Lord about? How do I go about doing that? 
Paul says that he begs us by God's mercy that you, now it's personal. It's not us. It's not somebody else. It's not I'll do it if you do it, but you, you present. And the word present here means to place, like an offering has come and placed on an altar. It it means to to give. It means to, I'm handing this to you. I have no rights to it anymore. It now belongs to you to place or to offer your personal again, bodies. And if you'll read the Greek definition of bodies, it talks about the sum made up of many different parts. It's the same word that Paul talked about describing the church in 1 Corinthians. It really means your whole person, everything that you are, that we're to present as a living sacrifice to God. Everything that you are. Now let me explain to you what that means. It doesn't mean all the good things that you've done. You don't present him your resume. You know, uh, you want this job? Let me see your resume. Okay, and I've really kind of doctored it up to make it sound better than I am. I only put my accomplishments on there. I never put my failures on there. If there's some sort of job gap, I come up with some clever way to kind of explain that because I put my best stuff. This is the best that I am in my resume. Will you please hire me? Well, it's not your resume. It also means your failures and your setbacks and the times that you lost your temper and the times that you got involved in gross immoral sin and the mistakes that you made and the purity that you squandered or whatever it is. It's all those things. My entire being, my perverted way of thinking and, and you know, the way I've rejected God and, and in addition to the way I've served him and loved him and memorized his, it's all of you. Every single bit of you, your heart, your mind, your will, your volition, your soul, everything that you are, that you present your bodies, not as a one-time sacrifice. The word living here means enduring or constant. The idea was that the Jews would come and they would take an animal and they would sacrifice it one time and that would cover, let's say, the sins of the nation for a year on the Day of Atonement. It's not the way it works. That I constantly present myself as an enduring a constant sacrifice, something I'm offering to the Lord. Literally, the word means something to be slaughtered. Slaughtered. God, I don't even like myself anymore. I don't like the situation I've, I'm in right now. I don't, I don't like the way my friends view me. I don't like the way I view them. I hate this bitterness in my heart, this bitterness towards you. I, I hate, I hate my life. Lord, take it. Kill it slaughter it. It belongs to you. It's another way of saying buried with Christ unto death and raised to a newness of life with him. For a saved person, I'm taking my life and giving it to the Lord and having destroy anything in my life that is offensive to him. To a lost person, it's coming to Christ and saying, I want to offer you my life, everything that I have, as little as it is, I've squandered it all or whatever. As little as it is, I want to offer it to you as a living sacrifice. But God, I don't think you're going to accept it because I wouldn't accept it. I wouldn't. I've had nothing left to give. Kind of like the thief on the cross. But watch what he says about the sacrifice. When we offer ourselves to him, he describes that sacrifice as, first of all, holy. It's one of those Greek words that you need to get hold of. Hagios, holy. It means set apart or sanctified or consecrated. It means sharing in God's purity and abstaining from the earth's defilement. 
God, there's no way I can offer you all my life being holy because there's nothing holy about it. This was the biggest hang-up I had in coming to Christ. I knew what I was like. I knew what I did to survive in this world. I knew the sin that I was involved in. And I knew that if I presented myself to Christ, that he would want to change some of those things because his word says so, and I wasn't about ready to give that up. Plus, I'd squandered, I thought, the best that I had to offer. God, I can't offer you anything holy. All I can offer you is something defiled. But your word holy means that I'm sharing in your purity, God, and I'm staying away from the defilement, but I'm not. And I learned from a godly person that I am supposed to come to Christ just like I am, defiled. And if there's any changing in me that needs to take place, he will do that. God, but you, you don't love me. You can't love me because I don't even love myself because of all the mistakes I've made and this mouth I can't keep from talking and the people I've hurt. And God, you would never accept me until we read the very next verse. God says that if we present ourselves to him based on his mercy, because of his mercy, not fear of judgment, because of his mercy, that he sees our gift as holy, It's not my holiness, it's Christ's holiness and acceptable. The word acceptable means good, well-pleasing to God, that which God wills and he also recognizes. God, I, I can't come to you because I made too much of a mess in my life. You can't ever get me out of this hole. The pit is too deep. You hate me. No, I don't. I have nothing left to give. Whatever you have to give, he says, I will accept It will be acceptable to me, well-pleasing to me. Now, when I read this, it was like these lights went off in my head. And wow, so it it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how defiled I am. I I mean, I'm more defiled than Daniel is. And so I understand you accepting Daniel because he's less defiled than I am. But I'm worse than Daniel. And there's no way you would accept me because I wouldn't accept me. And, And his response is always, since when is your judgment my judgment? Since when is your love my love? And the word says that, that I will, um, that your sacrifice will be holy and it will be acceptable not to necessarily man, but acceptable to God. Based on his mercy, it says, which is your reasonable service. It's the logical, rational thing to do. Reason means intelligent meditation. It means reflections on pertaining things to the soul. And the idea is the fact that, well, see, the, the Bible's all about faith and, and intellect doesn't come into it at all. It's not true at all. The reality is when I, reality is when I understand God's mercy and I understand his grace and I understand his forgiveness, and I understand that if I give myself to him as messed up as I am, that he's willing to accept me and call me his child and bestow upon me all the inheritance that he has reserved for Billy Graham. When I understand that, it seems like the logical, rational, intelligent thing to do would be take him up on that glorious gift. Would you not agree? It is your reasonable service. And the word service here, of course, means voluntary worship. A service that conforms to human reason. Amazing, amazing passage. When I understand who he is, then I can understand how to worship him. 
But one more verse. What's the flip side of this? What happens next? And here's the admonition to each of us. And implied you, since you're now a new person in him, do not be conformed to this world. The world conformed mean, and it's a very long Greek word here. It means to be fashioned alike or to conform to the same pattern outwardly. Don't act like the rest of the people. Don't do what they did. The fact is, or what they do, the fact is you now belong to a king. You're now a member of a kingdom. You now have the Holy Spirit living within you. The old man has died. The new man has been raised again. Steve was died, died. He was slaughtered on the altar of God, and God raised him up in the image of his son. So therefore, don't be conformed to this world. And I thought it was amazing as I looked at this. The word for world here is not cosmos. Do not be conformed to this evil world system. It's not cosmos. It's a different word. And it means a time period. It means a generation or the culture in which you live. Do not be conformed to the generation in which you live or the culture in which you live or the age and time in which you live as contrast to the word cosmos, which means this evil world system. Don't be like your neighbors. Don't be like your friends. Don't think like the world thinks. Don't, don't even think like the church thinks. Think like Christ thinks. Scripture never says that we will have the mind of the church. Scripture says that we will be given the mind of Christ. Do not be conformed to this culture or this generation. But what am I supposed to do? You be transformed. And if you can see the Greek word here, it's the word that we get in English for metamorphosis. You've got this caterpillar. And at some point in our time, this caterpillar who is earthbound and just moves very slow and is kind of an ugly kind of insect. And it hangs itself upside down and spins this little thing, this pod that he's in, and something happens miraculously inside that pod to the point, at some point in time, it breaks open, and out comes a totally new creature. Used to be a caterpillar, earthbound in the filth, but now all of a sudden there's this beautiful butterfly with these marvelous wings that can soar to the heavens. That's what the word means to be transformed, like transfigured, like Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, to be transformed, to change one's formed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation takes place when I renew, and this is a a qualitative renewing. It means a restoration. It means a restoring, a renewal to make something better. And I do it in my mind. It's the way I think. It's the antithesis, or it's the, the fulfillment of faith. Do not be conformed to this world. So what do I do, Lord? How do I learn to worship you? How am I changed on the inside out? You are transformed. You're turned from a caterpillar, which is really a nice way of saying a worm, into a beautiful butterfly by the renewing of your mind, getting your mind off what is mundane and placing your mind on something better. Having your mind conform to the image of Christ, having the mind of Christ, setting everything right with Christ. And what happens? What happens when that takes place? And listen, here's the promise for every one of us in here. Here's the promise. That you, it's personal now, may prove 
Prove means to determine whether it's true or not, whether it's worthy, whether it's trustworthy, to test, to discern. I may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm able to prove that God is love and God is true and God is real and things people have told me about him is true. The scripture is true. Not only is it true, but it's even greater than that, that I know what is the best, what is the distinguished, what is the excellent and acceptable and well-pleasing and perfect. It's complete, not lacking anything, will of God for my life and for your life. When we worship him, when we worship him, we're to come to him understanding what he's done in our life. He has transformed us. He's turned us into a butterfly instead of being a caterpillar. We're no longer trapped on earth anymore. We can soar into the heavens. We, we have direct access to the Father, that he sees everything that's going before us. We have someone that sticks closer to us, closer than a brother, that he promises never to leave us or forsake us. He takes care of all our needs. He He's the only thing in our life that gives us worth, and yet we fail to worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of this is yours. If you come and you offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice, God, take me. Take what I am. I want to be put to death and raised again in the newness of your life. I, I, I hate my life. I hate my sin. I hate the scars. Lord, absolutely take them away. And he does. And he does it in an incredible way. Listen very carefully as I close. One of the biggest things I hear, and the biggest things I struggle with in my own life, is I feel like I've fallen short of God's will for my life. You know, I know, God, that you maybe you wanted this, but... I messed up. I defiled myself. I defiled myself with sin. And it's almost to the point that I, I don't even want to pray anymore. I don't even want to come into his presence anymore. I, I've done things that are so bad, so horrible that I don't even like looking at myself in the mirror. How in the world could you possibly look at me? And so we shrink back and we don't want to worship him anymore. We don't want to praise him anymore. We don't want to get involved in what he's doing anymore because we're just praying that maybe he'll let us into heaven in spite of our sins. And none of that is true, that all those sins have been wiped away. All those sins have been obliterated. The purity that we've lost by our actions is restored by him. Have you ever really experienced his forgiveness and his love? Comes to you with a heart broken? Or you come to him with a heart broken like your kid comes to you begging for your forgiveness? What man does not forgive his son or his daughter? Ah, it's no big deal. I got it. I got it. Even no matter how old they are, I got it. Got it. The whole world may turn against you, but I'm always on your side. This is what God does for us. Have you ever experienced that? To to feel the weight gone. And then the, the refreshing coming in and, and realizing how wonderful and good he is. And if that's true, that you've actually understand what his will is and you've experienced his forgiveness and his goodness, I mean, isn't that enough to worship him for? Then what are we afraid of? Why do we hold back? 
Why do we fail to give the one who has given us everything the glory that is due him? Why do we do that? I was going to show you this after the message today, but um, there's a video I'd like to show you which kind of explains this. Um, It's a young girl who's 21 years old, and she has this YouTube channel, and she's talking about the purity movement. Remember that? Purity movement? We get all the kids together, and we want to make sure that they don't have sex um, before they get married, and so therefore we explain to them the importance of guys treating girls with respect and girls just don't have sex and you know and we give them purity rings and there's nothing wrong with that i did it with all my kids we give them purity rings and the idea is the fact that she's wearing this purity ring and the only time she will take that purity ring off is when it's replaced with a wedding ring and we have these big rallies and we joyfully consider all that and and it's great it's great one of the things that we do that's going to be explained to you in just a few minutes is we teach our children the purity is something like a commodity. It's something that you have, but if you lose it, if that alabaster jar is broken and all that purity spills out, you're done. You can't ever be pure again. You can't put the, the alabaster, uh, you can't put the oil back in the jar, and so therefore you're no longer pure anymore. So since you're no longer pure anymore, it doesn't really matter. I have, um, I can't tell you the number of girls that I've counseled, especially in our work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, where we're holding themselves for marriage. And then they met this guy, and they thought this guy was the one, so they made an unwise decision and went and had sex. And, of course, he wandered off and started doing his own thing. And since then, it's been one partner after another, after another, after another, after another. Why? Why? Why didn't you just recognize the sin and confess the sin and walk on down the road? Because I was impure. And after I was impure because I lost this purity, this thing I had, that um, there, was, um, there was no point in anything anymore. My self-worth totally became destroyed. But none of that is true. None of that is true. And I, I want to let this young lady explain this to you. My furniture in my room like four times a year. I just I can't live in one setting for a long time without getting bored of it. <laughs> anyway, what's up, you guys? It's Katie. And if you've been around for a while, you know that sometimes I like to do controversial topics for videos because everybody on the internet is always super nice about your opinion, and there's never haters, and nobody ever says anything mean ever. I can already feel all the dislikes on this video, but you know what? I don't even care. I'm ready for it. I'm ready to jump into the fire and talk about it. We're taking on the purity movement today, guys. Oh, I'm ready. So if you were raised in the church like myself, you probably had a purity talk at one time or another, whether it was at youth group or Sunday school or something in that context. And obviously to start with, they separated the guys and the girls into different rooms because you just can't talk about this subject with them in the same room. It's not how it's done. And what I discovered as I got older, as I started talking to my friends and we started kind of exchanging information on what happens in those very secret separate rooms, what I found is that the guys' message usually focused on this whole idea of respecting girls, which is a good thing. I do want to clarify that. Um, But what they really talked about was as you get older, you're going to have these feelings and it's really important to still be gentlemen and to have boundaries and not push a girl past these boundaries and to always, always, always treat her with respect, which is good. But the thing is that the girls talks, what we would always focus on 
The main thing, 100% hands down, was always saving sex until marriage. No matter what age you were, it was always about the fact that your body is a pure thing and guys are gonna wanna take from you and guys are gonna wanna do these things, but you need to save that. As if you have purity now, but if you make mistakes along the way to marriage, you can lose it. These discussions were then followed with all of us being strongly encouraged to get a purity ring, as well as these all too common analogies that go something like this. All right, ladies, think of your purity like a chocolate bar. For every guy that's not your husband that you give a piece of yourself, it's like breaking off a piece of your chocolate bar and then one day when you find your husband all you'll have to give them is half a chocolate bar don't you want to save your full chocolate bar for your husband you can also look at your purity like a glass of water you start out nice and clear but the more you start giving yourself away to people that aren't your husband the more you let dirt and grime into your glass of water and the more you do with people that are not your spouse the dirtier this glass of water gets and don't you think that you owe it to your future husband to keep that nice glass of water for him so here's what I noticed as a result. As I got older, despite all of the purity talks and all the analogies, hormones hit. And a lot of my friends made decisions that they later regretted. But because purity was always something that they had been told that they had, but it could be blemished or broken if they did something wrong, when they messed up, it was almost this all or nothing mentality. It's like, well, I messed up once, I might as well keep going. My chocolate bar is broken, my glass is dirty. This guy that I've been trying to stay pure for, he's not even gonna want me now anyways. Seeing some of my friends go through this and the hurt that they kept heaping on themselves because of it broke my heart. And for me, the problem of what happened was the basis of the talks in the first place. Let me say this once and let me say this clearly. My purity is not about me saving myself for another sinful human being that God has put on this earth. I am not a chocolate bar. I am not a glass of water. I am a daughter of the living God. And because of him sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, because of the Lord taking my transgressions upon himself on that cross that day, I owe him my entire life. I choose to live my life in a way that reflects Christ and to honor my body in the way that he has commanded me to do. And by so doing, I choose to save myself from marriage. I choose to have boundaries and relationships. I'm completely fine saying that I'm not gonna have sex until I'm married. And that is something I'm proud of, but it is also not something I'm doing for this future husband. I'm not doing this for some other person in this world to put him in that position, to put your future husband or your future spouse in that position is putting them in the position that Jesus Jesus Christ should be, which is not helpful and which is not right. You can't do this for another person. You have to do it for your relationship with the Lord. This is about you and God. This is not about you breaking some promise to some person you might not even know yet. Man, I'm so fired up right now. Purity isn't even just about sex. And yet so often in the church, all we hear about is saving yourself until marriage. Be pure, save yourself until marriage. And yet what about your language? What about your thoughts? What about your decisions and your actions? Purity is about aiming for more and to live your life in a way that reflects Christ. And yet all we hear is this, this message of sexual mistakes almost that weighs us down and don't mess up or else you're impure. What are we telling our future generation in the church? If you watching this have made decisions that you regret and you feel impure and you feel as though you had this gift that you gave away, I want you to know that when you come to the Lord and you give him your hurt and your wounds, his forgiveness and his grace makes it not about what you did with your body, but about what he did with his. That's a line my mother taught me when I was younger and I love it. And so many people 
We need to hear that. His sacrifice cleanses us pure and washes away all sins. Please don't accept this all or nothing mentality. You are a child of the living God and your relationship with him is what makes you pure, not the mistakes you might have in your past. And mistakes in your past do not define your future if you don't let them. So yes, I'm completely fine and confident saying before however many people are watching this video that I am saving sex for marriage and I'm excited that one day I will be able to experience that for the first time with my husband. But it was never about him and it was never about what my Sunday school teachers or youth leaders or even my parents told me. It was about my own relationship with the Lord. You know, I don't even care how many dislikes this video has because I'm glad that I made it. And I hope that if this is something that you've been thinking about or that you need to hear, something I've said has resonated with you today and I hope that some of it has been an encouragement for you on your journey. I love all you guys so much and I hope that you enjoyed this video and if you don't already follow me I'm gonna leave my social media here because I just love interacting with you over there. A lot of the comments and messages I've received from you recently have been the inspiration for this video as well as a lot of other ones so please do feel free to come hang out with me over here and keep being your awesome selves and until the next time I see you guys have a great life. Don't be stupid or make bad decisions. See the difference? Fact is that it doesn't matter how bad you messed up. Fact is that uh, when you come to Christ, all of that gets washed away. And he sees you as if you never have sinned. The whole idea of justification means that. Just as if I never have sinned. Most of us as believers in here struggle with the fact that we've committed these sins and we've messed up and we're no longer pure. We've done things we shouldn't have done and disappointed God. And so the God's this terrible taskmaster, just wants to beat us from heaven. And so therefore we fail to worship him. We fail to praise him. We fail to give our lives to him because we don't think he's even interested in what we have to offer. And none of that, none of that is true. Whatever you've done, whatever you're currently doing, whatever terrible situation you find yourself placed in, the reality is that there's forgiveness on the other side if you simply ask and simply yield and simply give yourself to him because he will take you and he will make you holy by virtue of his of the Holy Spirit living in you and he will accept whatever you offer him as well-pleasing to him. Amen? Let me pray.